Hey, welcome, New Life. I am so glad that you are joining us for worship today. And man, you are in for a treat. It is my pleasure to introduce one of my favorite preachers anywhere around. His name is Matt Proctor, and he is the president of Ozark Christian College. And he even taught some of my preaching classes when I was a Bible college student. I am so glad that he's here. Would you give a huge New Life welcome to my good friend, Matt Proctor? And I do bring you greetings from Ozark Christian College in Joplin, Missouri. Uh, we are grateful for a long partnership between this congregation and the work of the college. And for those of you who may not be f uh, familiar with Ozark, uh, first of all, we have a little table out in the lobby. I'd encourage you to pick up some of the literature there. But uh, we are a focused Bible college, which means that our one mission is training men and women for Christian service. Over 90% of our graduates go into some kind of ministry. And uh, after doing that for almost uh, seven years now, we have 15,000 plus alumni uh, literally around the globe, uh, serving in all 50 states and over 100 countries around the world, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ because of partnership with congregations like New Life. So thank you, thank you for joining us in that endeavor. Uh, excited about this message here this morning. So if you have your Bibles, would you grab those and open them up to Luke chapter 17? Luke chapter 17, want to look at that together with you here in just a moment. Luke 17. A few years ago, author Robert Hughes wrote a New York Times best-selling book entitled The Culture of Complaint. And his premise in that book was that as a culture, we Americans sometimes see ourselves as entitled. And so when things don't end up going our way, he said, often we complain. And it's hard to argue with that premise because if you're like me, you can hear the complaints all around us, can't you? Um, it's too hot in here. It's too cold in here. It's been so dry. Why does it always have to rain when we want to do something? We're so busy. Nobody ever calls us to do anything. The government isn't doing enough. The government is doing too much. Why doesn't everybody just wear masks? Why do we have to wear masks? I wish my kids would do something. I wish my kids weren't involved in so many things. The preacher preaches too long. The preacher doesn't preach long enough. I've never actually heard that one. But you understand the idea here that we live in this culture of complaint. We are a discontent, ungrateful people. I know that we are because I know I am. I live in Joplin, Missouri, and some of you will remember May 22nd, 2011, an EF5 tornado swept through our city. 161 dead, 1,200 injured, 400 businesses gone, 8,000 homes destroyed. Mercifully, our family's home was not touched, but we had some dear friends whose home was, was hit by the tornado. They were okay, but they needed a place to stay as their house was being rebuilt. And so they moved in to live with us. For four months, they lived with us while their home was being reconstructed. Now, here's what you need to know. My wife, Katie, and I, we have six children. Okay? Just wait. The uh, family that moved in with us, lived with us for four months, they have nine children. So you're doing the math in your head right now. I know, six and nine, yes. I had a 1,000 kids living in my house. They were everywhere. I brought a picture so that you could get an idea of the madness. There were kids under every foot. And uh, my daughter, Lydia, during this time uh, was talking with some of her little girlfriends, and these girls were talking about what they collect 
And, and one little girl said she collected um, coins, and another little girl said she collected uh, stuffed animals, and somebody turned to Lydia and said, Lydia, what do you collect? And she said, I collect brothers and sisters. <laughs> and I can just tell you that in the midst of those four months, there were moments when I was tired. If I'm being honest, I was tired of having such a crowded house. I was tired of having no privacy. I was tired of waiting in line for the bathroom. And in those moments, I could feel myself getting frustrated. And just as I was standing there ready to complain, that's when I would remember, oh yeah, at least I have a house. There are 8,000 families in my city that do not. And I know that we can be un grateful because I know I am. And often we're ungrateful because we're thinking about what we don't have instead of thinking about what we do have. And that's why a preacher named John Ortberg says that sometimes we need to look at our lives and we need to say four words. We need to say, it could be worse. In fact, we're going to do that here this morning. We're going to practice. This is going to be our little liturgy, audience participation time. Here in just a moment, I'm going to give you a cue, and you're going to say loudly, with great passion, it could be worse. Can we do this? Are you with me here this morning? All right, let's try this. All right, let's practice. Here we go. Are you ready? It could be worse. That's pretty good. Let's try that again, a little louder this time. It could be worse. One more time, with great passion. Here we go. It could be worse. Very good. Now, let's practice using that phrase. You are going to leave here today. You're going to go out to the parking lot. You're going to get into your car. And some of you might be tempted to think, if I just had a different car, if I had a bigger car, a nicer car, a newer car, a more expensive car, then, then I would be happy. But today, you're not going to think that because today, as you get into your car, you're going to say to yourself with great passion, it could be worse. Very good. And when you get home, you're going to put the key in the front door. And you might be tempted to think to yourself, if I just had someone else's house, if I had another place that was bigger or nicer or newer, then, then I would be content. But today, when you walk through the door, you're not going to say that. Because instead, today, you're going to say to yourself, with great passion, it could be worse. Very good. And the next time you get out of the shower and you look at yourself in the mirror, <laughs> especially that side view, am I right? I am right. You're going to be tempted to think to yourself, if only I had someone else's body, more muscular, slimmer, trimmer, younger, then, then I would be happy. But the next time that happens, you're not going to do that. Instead, you're going to say to yourself, with great passion, very good. And tomorrow morning when you wake up and you roll over and you look at your spouse, you're going to say, no, don't do that. Don't do that. But you know it's true. It could be worse. And yet, and yet we forget don't we? We forget and we find ourselves discontent and complaining and ungrateful. For the lepers in Luke 17, do you have your Bibles open there? For the lepers in Luke 17, it could not be worse. We're going to start reading this story in verse 11. Luke 17, verse 11 says this. Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. Now let me stop right there. If you have ever read through the Gospel of Luke, you know that Luke tells the story of Jesus as one long journey toward the cross. Five different times in the gospel, five times, Luke tells us Jesus is walking towards Jerusalem. Now, quick geography lesson, the country of Israel is a long, skinny country. And on the map of Israel, right down here in the south is where Jerusalem is at. And yet, at times, in the gospel of Luke, when Jesus is walking north, away from the city, Luke will still say, Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. 
Why? Well, because Jesus' entire life was a journey to the cross. Luke is not making a geographical statement. He's making a theological statement. No matter which way he was walking, Jesus was always heading to Jerusalem. He was always heading to die on the cross for the sins of humanity. So it's important for us to notice as we start this story that it begins with Jesus on his way to Jerusalem. Let's start reading again at verse 12. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and they called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go, show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Ungrateful. Now, many times, I don't know if you're like me, I often think of Jesus as kind of this impassive, this dispassionate person who doesn't really display strong feelings or strong emotions. But you can hear it in the text, can't you? The disappointment in Jesus' voice. We're not all ten cleansed. Where are the other nine? One time, this was several years ago when my six kids were small, we were seated at the dinner table and my wife Katie was putting the food on the table. And before we even started eating, my kids started to complain. Did your kids ever do this? Oh, yuck. I don't like this. I don't like that. And so when Katie sat down, before we even said the prayer, I said, "Uh, kids, before before I I ask God's blessing on our food, I want to tell you a little Bible story, okay? All right, Dad. I'm going to tell you the story about the Israelites wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Oh, yeah, we remember that one, Dad. Yeah, and you remember for 40 years, all those Israelites had to eat was manna and quail for 40 years. Oh, yeah, we we remember that part, Dad. And you remember after eating that for 40 years, they complained about their food too. Oh, yep, yep, they sure did. And kids, do you remember what, what did God do to the Israelites when they complained about their food? He killed them. Now eat your food. And they did, and it was a very quiet meal. And one of the things, this is, this is kind of crazy, but one of the things when you read through the Bible that you notice, one of the most striking things is how seriously God takes ingratitude. I mean, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, there is a vice list. There's this, this list, this catalog of 19 sins that God hates. And right there in that list, with words like boastful and proud and abusive and brutal and treacherous, is the word ungrateful. Wow. In fact, in Romans chapter 1, when the Apostle Paul is describing the most basic sinfulness of, of man, he's talking about our primary failure, our downfall. This is how he describes it. He says, although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. Paul says that ingratitude was our first step into depravity. And God takes ingratitude very seriously because he knows how destructive it is to us. You see, if I, if I become a part of the culture of complaint, if I allow myself to become an ungrateful person, here's what will happen to me. I will be dissatisfied in my work. I will be disappointed in my relationships. I will be resentful of other people. Instead of enjoying each day and living it fully, I will get preoccupied with what I think it would take to make me happy. 
I will fall into temptation. I will become self-centered. I, I will disregard God. My words will become negative. The atmosphere around me will turn toxic and my soul will start to shrivel up and die. But gratitude, on the other hand, if I were to become a grateful person, G.K. Chesterton said, gratitude is the mother of all virtues. And, and when we plant ourselves in the soil of thanksgiving, all kinds of good things spring forth. Gratitude is a vaccine against temptation. Gratitude is a force field against bitterness and discouragement. Gratitude kills pride. Gratitude slaves, uh, slays self-sufficiency. Gratitude fills the air with the sweet aroma of humility and grace and joy and gratitude, you've noticed this, gratitude actually draws other people to you like a magnet. Psychologists tell us that grateful people are stronger, more resilient, more enthusiastic, and more determined than those who are ungrateful. And that's why the old Puritan preacher Matthew Henry one time said this. He said, thanksgiving is good, but thanksgiving is better. And psychologically, theologically, he's right. And so it's for our own good that God will say to us in places like 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 20, always give thanks to God the Father for everything. And that's why here in our text, Jesus is grieved. When these ten lepers are healed, nine of them, 90% of them fail to give thanks. And by the way, it's probably not a coincidence that the only one that does come back to give thanks is a Samaritan. Psychologists study a, a phenomenon called habituation. Have you heard this word before? Are you familiar with habituation? Habituation is when a, a new stimulus is introduced into your environment, and at first you are intensely aware of that stimulus, but over time your awareness begins to fade. So, for example, you buy a new wristwatch, and at first, you know, when you put that on, you can just kind of feel it there all day long for a day or two. But over time, your nervous system learns to ignore the weight of the watch, and pretty soon, you don't even realize you're wearing it anymore. You can't even feel it anymore because you have habituated. Over time, due to familiarity, things that once got our attention no longer get our attention. There's a Christian author named Philip Yancey. He tells about a time he and his wife went to Yellowstone National Park, and they ate there in the big lodge, the restaurant that has the huge windows that face Old Faithful. And he noticed that when the famous geyser erupted, all of those eating in the restaurant, all of the patrons, were instantly drawn to the window, looking out in wonder at this amazing natural phenomenon. But he said he noticed that all of the servers there, all of those who worked at the restaurant, they just continued about their duties, picking up the dishes without even raising their head, not even a glance toward the windows, because it no longer captured their attention. They felt no awe. After long familiarity, they had habituated. And maybe, maybe that's why the nine Jewish lepers never came back. Maybe that's why they felt no gratitude. You see, the Samaritan, the Samaritan had not grown up knowing that he was part of God's chosen people. And so God's goodness to him is unexpected. And so he's, he's overcome, he's overwhelmed with this need to give thanks, and he comes running back. But the Jewish lepers, well, they did grow up as God's chosen people. And maybe they had grown used to God's blessings. Maybe they had grown accustomed to his grace, and maybe that's why they weren't struck with gratitude. Now, I am what is known as a Buick. Now, a Buick is a brought-up-in-church kid, Buick, all right? And I have grown up all my life around God and around Jesus and around the grace and around the gospel of the Christian faith, and 
I think the greatest danger that I probably face is not spiritual rebellion, it's spiritual habituation. I can grow so familiar, so used to the blessings of God that I am no longer struck with wonder or gratitude. Has it ever happened to you? Psalm 103, verse 2 says, Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. So could I do this with you here this morning in the minutes that I have left? Could I, from this text in Luke 17, could I just, could I just remind you of some of the blessings that we have been given? There are three at least I see in this text. Here's the first. Jesus gives us a hearing. Jesus gives us a hearing. Now, can I tell you the, the story of the first time I ever met my wife, Katie? I was, a, I was a student at the Bible College up at Ozark Christian College in Joplin, and um, I was the leader of a singing group. It was called a camp team, and there were four of us students that were going to travel all summer long to these Christian summer camps, and we were going to sing and represent the college. And with two weeks left to go in the spring semester, spring 1989, uh, two weeks left to go in spring semester before we were supposed to go out on summer tour, all of a sudden, the soprano on my singing group got mononucleosis. Oh, no, what are we going to do? She's not going to be able to travel with us. I went to the camp team coordinator there at the school. His name was Jeff. I said, Jeff, what are we going to do? Jamie's got mono. She can't travel. And Jeff said, Matt, don't worry about it. Just finish your classes. I'll find a replacement soprano. I said, okay. And a few days later, Jeff called me on the phone. He said, Matt, I've got another soprano for your group coming over to my office. I'll introduce you to her. I said, okay. And so I can, I can still remember the day. It was a bright, sunny May afternoon. And I walked across the campus there at Ozark. I walked into Jeff's office and he introduced me for the very first time to this young sophomore named Katie Bunton. And oh boy, I can remember shaking her hand and looking into her eyes and thinking, behold, God is good, all right? Because <laughs> she's good looking, all right? And, and, uh, and she had to learn all these songs real quick, you know, to go out on summer tour with us. And I found out, wow, she's not just beautiful, but she's really talented. And, you know, she's intelligent and she's gracious and she's committed to the Lord. I mean, a few days in, I am head over heels in love with this girl. And I also knew I had no chance. I mean, I was 19 years old. Uh, back then, I was super skinny. I was 135 pounds. And, uh, and I mean, I had a bad haircut. I had a gap between my teeth. I was from Iowa. I got nothing going for me here, all right? And, and, uh, and, but we can all dream. And, and so we go out on summer tour. We're traveling around all these camps. And, and, uh, and one weekend, we're in between weeks of camp. And so we come back to the campus there at the Bible College. We're going to stay the weekend on campus. We're going to stay in what they called the hospitality trailer. Now, it was a mobile home that they had divided into two living apartments. And so uh, Katie and the other girl on our camp team were going to stay over in this apartment. And uh, the other guy on my camp team and I were staying in the apartment over here. It's Friday night. I'm sitting in the living room in the boys' apartment. Katie is sitting in the living room over here in the girls' apartment. Thin wall separates these, these two living rooms. Now, uh, from where I'm sitting, I can hear the door open to the, to the girls' apartment. One of Katie's best friends had come to visit her that evening, and so they were sitting over there in the living room, and they're talking on my side. You know, I could just hear some muffled sounds. But uh, I got up to go walk over towards the door, and as I did, I slipped. And my ear accidentally pressed firmly up against that wall. And I was stuck there for several minutes, you understand. And as I was stuck there, I accidentally overheard Katie's best friend ask Katie if she was interested in me. Ho, 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 ho. And I was expecting Katie to say, oh, no, uh-uh, no way, bah, uh, never. But I accidentally overheard Katie refuse to answer. Ho, 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 ho. 
Now, at that point, the other guy on my camp team walked in the door. My ear miraculously became unstuck. Hey, how you doing? But that little conversation that I overheard stuck in my head, and I thought to myself, could this possibly be true? Could, over these last few weeks, could Katie have actually paid any attention to me at all? Could she actually have taken notice of me? Could she have any interest in me? And long story short, two years later, I married that girl. And do you know how long our relationship will be strong? Our relationship will be strong as long as I never get over the fact that she took notice of me, that she paid attention to me. In our text here, these ten lepers that approached Jesus, you understand that they were men to whom no one wanted to pay attention. They'd been cast out of society. These lepers had to cover their face. Their identity as a unique individual human being had been taken away. If they came near anyone, they had to cry out, Unclean! Unclean! And these ten skeletal men in various stages of decay, their clothing torn, looked like they had climbed out of their own graves. And they were rotting away on the fringe of society. But in desperate hope, they call out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And in a moment of amazing grace, Jesus stops. And he turns to look at them. And he gives them an incredible gift. He gives them a hearing. He gives them his full awareness. Now, now you know that when you pay attention to someone, you, when you actually listen, you focus totally in on them, you are saying to them, right now, you are the most important person in my world. In fact, can you hear the language that we use? Attention is something so valuable, you pay it. We pay attention. Scott Peck is a Christian psychiatrist, and he said this one time. He said, the principal form that the work of love takes is attention. You see, in our fast-paced world, it's not easy to actually pay attention. It's, it's really easy to not listen to people. Have you ever done this? Have you ever given somebody what I call the head nod? You know what I'm talking about? Somebody comes up to you, they have something they really want to say, and you have some other place that you really need to go, and so you're really not interested in hearing all this. And to get them to talk faster, you kind of nod your head at them. Yeah, okay, uh-huh, sure, sure. Some of you are doing it to me right now. I can see it. Stop it. And what if, what if, this is so crazy, you know, er, you just push pause there for a moment, and you actually listened. You actually paid attention. Attention is hard. And often we don't notice other people. Guys, when your wife gets a new haircut or a new outfit or she redecorates the house and you don't notice, how does that go? I'm guessing not well. The principal form that the work of love takes is attention. And here's the amazing truth in this text. Jesus pays attention. He pays attention to you. Some of you might be here this morning and you might think that Jesus would have no interest in you, that he would not want to take note of you. You think that you're a nobody just like me with Katie. Spiritually, you, you're thinking you're the person that has a bad haircut and a gap between your teeth and Jesus wouldn't want to have anything to do with me. But I'm telling you what, Jesus knows your name. The Bible says that he has every single hair on your head numbered. He knows exactly how fast your heart is beating right now. He knows your favorite food. He knows your favorite music. He knows what clothes you're wearing today and exactly why you picked those clothes out. He knows your hopes, your dreams, your hurts, your fears. And I am telling you, Jesus has his body turned directly towards you and he is not giving you the head nod. You have his full attention. And if you have ever prayed and wonder if your prayers were actually getting past the ceiling, I'm telling you that every word you say, every word you think the king of the universe himself is giving you a hearing. The principal form that the work of love takes is attention, and he really loves you. Do you think you could give thanks just because Jesus listens to you? I think I could. 
But there's a second blessing in this text. Jesus gives us a healing. He gives us a healing because Jesus does more than just pay attention to these lepers. He actually commands them to go show themselves to the priests. Now, that's what a cured leper would have to do before he would be allowed to re-enter society. But notice, these ten are not cured yet. So you've got to give them credit. It actually takes a great act of faith on their part to obey Jesus, to turn around and start walking away towards the priests, even though they have not yet been healed. And as they respond to him in faith, by the way, this is the way salvation always works, as they respond in faith, they were healed. And actually, did you, did you notice the word that Luke uses here in verse 14? He says, they were cleansed. Oh, You see, this isn't just a physical blessing of of health restored. This this has spiritual consequences. You see, as long as they were unclean, these lepers could not enter the temple. They couldn't worship. They were excluded from the people of God. They were excluded from the presence of God. But now, now they have been cleansed. And now they can go into temple. They can worship. They are part of the people of God. They are welcomed into the presence of God. This is a spiritual blessing that Jesus has given them. And you know, church, that we have been given that very same blessing, that same healing. We call it salvation. And sometimes, yet, we forget. Or at least we forget to live in gratitude for that salvation. Maybe, maybe it's because we forget what we have been healed of? I mean, we, we forget how sick we actually are. Oh, yes, yes, I know. I mean, nobody's perfect. I'm a sinner. You're a sinner. You know, uh, we're all sinful. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm spiritually sick. I get what you're saying there, preacher. But, but let's just be honest here. I mean, there's, there's regular sinners, and then there's real sinners, right? There, there's the people that are really, really bad. And I mean, that's not me. I'm, I'm a pretty good person. I'm a pretty decent person. If you were to go to the Jewish priests for a spiritual health check, Here's what I think they would have done to, to diagnose just exactly how, how sick your soul might be. I think the priests would have, would have turned to the Ten Commandments and they would have used those as a diagnostic tool to see how sinful you actually are. So this is what I'm going to do. This is going to be audience participation time. I have right here Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. I am going to read these Ten Commandments and I want you to actually keep track of how many of the Ten Commandments you have never broken in your life. Like, at the end, I'm going to ask for your number. I'm going to ask for a show of hands. So you keep track of how many of the Ten Commandments you have never broken in your life. Now, you understand that the Bible says if you break even one of God's Ten Commandments, that you are a lawbreaker and you're separated from God. I mean, if you're hanging off the edge of a cliff and you're holding on for dear life to a chain that has ten links, how many of those links have to break before you fall to your death? Just one. You only have to break one of God's laws to be doomed for eternity. But let's just see. Let's see how many of the Ten Commandments you have kept all of your life. So, are you ready? Here's the quiz. Keep track of your number. Number one, you shall have no other gods before me. So if God has always been your top priority every moment of your life, nothing has ever been more important to you than God, you know, not, not money, not sex, not relationships, not family, not work, not hobbies. God has always been the number one spot in your life. Every moment of your life, you count that as one you've never broken. Number two, you shall not make for yourself an idol. So if you have never carved a graven image and bowed down to it, you count that as one you've never broken. Aren't you glad that one's in there? We all have one now, okay? Keep track. I want your numbers. Here we go, number three, okay? You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God in vain. So if you have never used God's name or the name of Jesus Christ in vain, oh my, and, and, and said it in a, in a profane way, you've never texted, OMG, then you count that as one you've never broken. Number four, 
Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. So if you have never, uh, uh, you've always been in worship when you were supposed to be in worship. You've never skipped church, you know, to, to go to a ball game or to sleep in or to go on vacation. And when you were in worship, you kept the Sabbath holy by actually worshiping and never letting your mind wander at any point. But you were fully engaged. You count that as one that you have never broken. Number five, honor your father and mother. So when you're a kid, you always obeyed every single thing that your parents said to you. You never sassed your mom and dad at all when you were a teenager. You never made fun of your parents' clothes behind their back. Now that your parents are older, you, you show them respect. You never complain about them. You count that as one you've never broken. Keep your number. Number six, thou shalt not kill. Now, before you give yourself a point right there, remember what the New Testament says. It says if you get angry in your heart against your brother, you've committed murder in your heart. So if you've never been angry with somebody else, you count that as one that you've never broken. I see hands going up. Oh, man. And, and uh, here's, here's the next one. You shall not commit adultery. Now, remember what the New Testament says. It says that if you have even had a lustful thought in your heart, you've committed adultery in your heart. So if you've ever even had a lustful thought, you count that as one that you've never broken. All right? Keep track of your number. Here's number eight. You shall not steal. So if you've never taken anything that didn't belong to you, never took a dollar out of your mom's purse without asking you, never took an answer off another kid's test, you have no holiday in towels in your house whatsoever, then you count that as one that you have never broken. Number nine. Number nine. You shall not give false witness. So you've never lied. You've never, never said something that you knew wasn't true. You know, when you were a kid, you never told your mom and dad that you were over here doing something when really and truly you were over here doing something. You've never fudged on your taxes with the IRS. You've never said to somebody, wow, you look nice today when you knew they looked terrible. You never said something that you knew wasn't true. Then you count that as when you've never broken. Here's the last one. You shall not covet. So if you've never wished that you could have something that belonged to somebody else, you never uh, wished that you could have, you know, their house or their family or their job or their body, whatever it is, you've never been jealous of something somebody else has, you count that as one that you have never broken. Now, you got your number? How many of the Ten Commandments you have never broken? Has anybody here kept all Ten Commandments all of your life? Okay. Nobody raising their hand? That's good. If you, that, you know, if you did, you'd be lying. That's one of them. You know, I have to bust you right there for that. You've just proven the Bible true. No one is righteous, not even one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All right, but I'm still curious about your number. Any nines? Any nines? Anybody got a nine? You kept nine? All right. All right. Any eights? Any eights? Okay, not, not seeing any eights. How about, how about a, a seven? Now, at my college, uh, 70% is a D minus, but it's still passing. I'm gonna, I'll give you credit. Any sevens? Any sevens? Can I, can I get a six? Can I get a six? I just got to say, y'all are a wicked group. That's what I need to tell you, okay? So, now I'm not going to go any lower because some of you are getting really nervous right now. You're like, oh, man. And I don't want to embarrass anybody, but here's, here's the hard truth. When I give myself this examination, what I discover about myself is that I'm, I'm not just a regular sinner. I'm a real sinner. I'm a lawbreaker who has rebelled against my God time and time and time and time again. And I am spiritually sick. And we're not talking about a little fever. We are talking about stage four cancer. It could not be worse. I have leprosy of the soul and I am dying. But the good news is that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. And because Jesus was on his way to the cross, now my sins are gone. Now your sins are gone. Now our guilt is gone. And we have been freed. We have been cleansed. We have been delivered. We have been rescued. We have been redeemed. We have been adopted into the family of God. Isaiah chapter 53, by his wounds, we are healed. Do you think? Do you think you could give thanks because Jesus has given you a healing? I think I could. 
But there's one more blessing in this text, and it's this. Jesus gives us a homecoming. A homecoming, because that is the final blessing. Make no mistake, after these lepers go and they show themselves to the priests, here's what would have happened. They would have had to undergo an eight-day ceremony where they stayed there at the temple. But after those eight days, then, then came the joyful end of the story. They got to go home. Reunited with friends, reunited with loved ones, reunited with their family in the place where they are loved and the people with, with whom they love, the place where all is well, the place where all is right. They got to go home. And as soon as they realized they were healed, oh, they knew, they knew that, yes, they'd have to wait a little while, but their hope was secure. They were going home. Listen to me, church. That's our story. Yes, we have to wait for a little while, but our hope is secure. We know where we're going. Can I, can I close with this? This picture that I brought with me here is my wife Katie's heart. Uh, my wife Katie grew up in a little village, Irwin, Missouri, population 100. If you were to drive north out of Joplin on Interstate 49, driving towards Kansas City, after about 30 minutes, you'd come to a little town called Lamar, Missouri. And about seven miles north of Lamar, Missouri, you would notice, heading off to the east, Highway C. If you turn east there on Highway C, you drive about a half a mile, you're going to drive over some railroad tracks right here, and you'll notice off to your left a big white hay barn. You turn in left there at the hay barn, and you are at Bunton Farms. My wife grew up in a big farming clan. This, this piece of ground has, has been farmed by her family for almost 70 years. And this is her favorite place in the world. You've, you've seen these, these aerial shots of the old homestead. And Katie's mom, this, this hangs in our bedroom, you know. And Katie's mom, uh, her name is Ruth. Uh, we call her Granny. Granny Ruth gave Katie this picture. And Granny Ruth, all of her life, was a faithful journaler. She kept a diary. And so when she gave Katie this picture, right down here in the corner, she put a little note with it. She had looked up in her diary what was happening on the day this picture was taken. Can I read you the note? Granny Ruth wrote this, It's not art, but it's home. To Bunton Farms Incorporated, Irwin, Missouri, and to the Irwin 4-H Club. All six of my kids have been through the Irwin 4-H Club. Seven miles north of Lamar, Missouri. August 10th, 1983. Katie would have been about 13. The camera didn't catch, but my journal shows that on that day, Katie was bringing the rakes in at the end of haying. Mike and Matt, those are two of Katie's older brothers, were taking a bale wagon load of hay to a hay customer. And Marty, that's her oldest brother, was on a three-wheeler checking irrigation pipe. The Bunton Reunion Company, the Bunton Reunion is always in August, the Bunton Reunion Company was staying overnight, and Don, that's Katie's dad, Don was actually inside visiting with them instead of outside working, she said in surprise. And Ruth... That's, that's Katie's mom, Granny. Ruth was picking blackberries beyond the oaks. And it was hot that day. Now when I look at this picture, when Katie looks at this picture, I could not begin to tell you how many family dinners we have eaten right underneath that roof. And how many family baseball games we've played right there in that front yard. How many arguments her brothers have had right there in that driveway. And when she looks at this picture, there are more memories here than you could shake a stick at. 
And I'm telling you that my wife's roots run so deep in this ground that her veins flow with Barton County dirt. It's not art, but it's home. Now, a few years ago, my wife and I took our kids on a vacation. And I'm going to call it an epic vacation. We had never taken our six kids to go see the western United States. And so we loaded all six of our kids up into our family vehicle. We drive a 15-passenger van, white van, looks like a church van. And for the next 24 days, we lived out of that van, the eight of us. We drove 7,000 miles, 14 states, eight national parks. Epic vacation. Can I tell you some of the amazing things we got to see? We stood in wonder at the edge of the Grand Canyon. Have you been there? We marveled at the Indian cliff ruins at Montezuma's Castle, and we watched the sunset on the red rocks of Sedona, Arizona. We ran in the surf at the, at the Pacific Ocean. We took, we took all of our kids to Disneyland. I spent the longest week of my life there that day. Uh, but at the end of the day, when the fireworks were exploding over Disney's castle and my kids' eyes were as wide as saucers, it was all worth it. We went to the Hollywood sign, Grauman's Chinese Theater, to see the stars on the sidewalk. We walked across the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco, and we went to Pier 39 at Fisherman's Wharf to watch the sea lions. We watched the cable cars go up and down the hill. We, we whitewater rafted Kings Canyon, the Smith River, the Merced River. We rafted Yosemite National Park. We climbed to the top of Yosemite Falls, and we watched the moon rise over Half Dome. We saw the mighty sequoias, and we went camping in the Redwoods Magical Forest. My kids and I, we, we played hide-and-seek among these, these stumps there that were literally as big as houses. We saw the, the, the deepest lake, the clearest blue water in the world you will ever see at Crater Lake in Oregon. We explored lighthouses on the Oregon coast. We saw a pod of whales playing out in the ocean, and we waded in the tide pools on the shore looking at mussels and anemone and starfish. We, we camped in Yellowstone. We watched Old Faithful explode. We saw a bear, moose, elk, buffalo. We climbed to that bridge across the Multnomah Falls there in the Columbia River Gorge. And we saw a rodeo in Cody, Wyoming. In South Dakota, in South Dakota we were surrounded by 50,000 bikers in black leather <laughs> that were there for the Sturgis Rally. And we stood and we marveled at those faces carved into Mount Rushmore. And I'm telling you, it was an epic vacation. We saw breathtaking wonder after breathtaking wonder, so many amazing, beautiful sights. But can I tell you, the most beautiful sight we saw on our whole trip, it came near the end of those 7,000 miles. And when we hit Kansas City and we turned south, driving on I-49, about seven miles north of Lamar, Missouri, off to the east... Was Highway C. <laughs> and we turned east and we drove about a half a mile right over those railroad tracks and there at that big white hay barn we turned in and as we pulled in the driveway coming right down out of that front door down those front steps was Granny herself. Big smile on her face. It had been 24 days since we'd seen her. And she embraced us all. And she invited us in for supper. And my wife's soul breathed a sigh of relief and she wept tears of joy it's not art but it's home now you hear me church 
A day is coming at the end of our long journey when we, when we finally pull in the driveway of that celestial city, that new Jerusalem, and coming down out of that front door, right down those front steps to greet us in the driveway will be Jesus himself, big smile on his face, embraces all around, well done, good and faithful servant. And he will invite us in for supper, the wedding banquet of the Lamb. And we will sit there and we will eat and we will drink and we will sing and we will laugh with the ones that we have loved and with the one that we love until the joy pierces our hearts like a sword because we will be home. We give thanks because it could be worse. But most of all, we give thanks because it will be better. Let's pray. Father God, forgive us for the times when we forget the blessings that we have received from your hand. Father, it is so easy for us to habituate and to not recognize the grace after grace that we have received from you. So we pray that you would open our eyes that our hearts would once again be filled with gratitude at every good gift that comes down from you. Father, fill our mouths with thanks and praise. Thank you for hearing us. Thank you for healing us. And thank you for giving us the hope of home. And until that day, keep us faithful. Keep us grateful. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.